Good to see y'all this morning. Question that's on my heart is: Is your heart hard this morning? Is your heart hard this morning? Which leads us to ask the next question, well, what do we mean by that? That expression is used throughout Scripture, and in different contexts, it has slightly different meanings. So I want to use the Gospel of Mark and look through four different examples this expression comes up and see what we can glean. So turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Jesus entered into a synagogue, and inside there was a man who had a withered hand, some deformity. And the Pharisees who were in there watched him to see whether he was going to heal this man because it was the Sabbath day. And the reason they were watching is they wanted to accuse him. They wanted to have have something to lay against Jesus' charge. He said unto the man which had the withered hand, he said, Stand forth. Guy comes up seen and he says to those who are watching waiting to accuse them he says is it lawful to do good on the sabbath days or to do evil to save life or to kill he was not asking these questions rhetorically ask a question rhetorically when you don't expect an answer he was asking for an answer but they didn't say anything they held their peace and when he looked round about on them with anger. This is the Lord Jesus looking at this group of individuals who wants to trap him. They want to have something to accuse again. And he's looking on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. The hardness of their hearts. He's grieved. There was he had sorrow on account of someone else. For the callousness, the hardness of their hearts. And he said unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as with the other. And what was their reaction? The Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians, the followers of Herod, against him, how they might destroy him. Their hearts were hard. They were callous. He's talking to unbelievers, right? So in this context, you have unbelievers who have hard hearts. And they were so caught up with having their laws and traditions followed that they despised the fact that there was mercy being shown upon this poor individual. They had no mercy within them. Their hearts were hard. All right? Go later to Mark chapter 6. Mark's chapter 6. We're going to be at the tail end of the chapter. Briefly give you the context. Jesus has fed the 5,000. A few loaves, a few fishes. He feeds 5,000 people. There's like 40,000 in all of Tiff County. So can you imagine putting on a meal that feeds such a large percentage of the population here? I mean, sometimes we think about those numbers. And they just counted the men, I believe. Right? They didn't even have a head count for the sisters and the children large meal that just went on he sends his disciples to go into a ship go to the other side right they're always bouncing back and forth across the sea of galilee he sends them aside he goes apart jesus to to a mountain to to pray 47 it says when evening was come and the ship was in the midst of the sea and he alone on the land he saw them toiling and rowing for the wind was contrary unto them so they're trying to get across the sea It's it's a big lake they're trying to get across and they're not making headway for the wind's contrary And so about the fourth watch of the night, really early in the morning, after they've been laboring all night, he comes walking upon the sea and would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out. I probably would have cried out too. For they saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked to them and said unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased. 
And they were sore amazed in themselves, beyond measure, and wondered. Why were they sore amazed, beyond measure, wondering? Because for for the reason, for they considered not. They did not understand. They did not comprehend. They did not put two and two together. The miracle of the loaves. They had just watched this amazing miracle where you've got next to nothing feeding this massive multitude. And then here comes Jesus walking on the water and it's just blowing their mind because they're not making the connection about the power that did that, the power that's doing this, and why? Why not? For their hearts were hardened. Strong's would use that definition there of to petrify. Evil. (laughs) Not evil in this case. Hardened. One of the symptoms of that hardening is their unbelief, their disbelief. Though they'd seen the Lord doing things amazing in the past, they were not able to discern that here. They're shocked that he still has the power here. The hardness of your heart can hinder you making the connection of what you've already seen that the Lord can still work now and in ways that you can't comprehend. So their hearts were hardened. Now these are followers of Christ, right? He said, follow me. And they said, yes, sir. And they seen him do a multiple of miracles. So would I say this is believers who he's talking to? I'd say so. What's the lesson from that? You as believers, your hearts can be hardened. Is it the same hardening as one who's never been born again? No. Different context. But you can have a hardening of your heart. And in fact, go forward to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. You know, we just had the feeding of the 5,000. Mark 8 deals with the feeding of the 4,000. A few loaves, a few fishes, feeds 4,000 men. Straightway, he enters into the ship with his disciples this time. Right? They go into parts of Dalmathia. Can't pronounce it. And the Pharisees came forth. All right, same ones who wanted to accuse him about healing the withering man. They come forth and began to question him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. Not because they really wanted a sign from heaven. They wanted to test him. They wanted to find something they could lay against him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and says, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall be no sign given unto this generation. And he left them entering into the ship and again departed to the other side. So we're bouncing back and forth across the sea. And the disciples had forgotten to take bread. All right, That's just a fact of what's going on. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. Right, now, naturally, is, more, is one loaf going to feed you know, all the disciples? No, it's not enough. You've got at least 12 of them, plus Jesus, from whoever else was in the boat. So that's at least 13. So one loaf is not enough, naturally speaking. Right? And Jesus speaks to them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. So they're scratching their heads, saying, Okay, our master often talks to us in parables and riddles. What's he mean by this? And they reason in themselves, well, it's because we brought no bread. They take the most carnal response to it. He's giving them a spiritual instruction, and they're applying their carnal eyes to it. Okay, well, he must be saying this because we forgot to bring bread. And Jesus, and when Jesus knew it, he said, Why reason ye because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet? Do you not understand yet? Neither understand? Have ye... Your heart yet hardened. Having eyes see ye not, having ears hear you not. Do ye not remember when I break the five thousand among the five uh, break the five loaves among the five thousand? How many baskets of fragments took ye up? Twelve. They had more at the end than what they started with. They'd seen that. He's reminding them. And when we fed the four thousand with the seven, how many fragments took you up? Seven baskets, right? How is it that you do not understand? Now, he's talking to them about the leaven, Pharisees and Sadducees. He's talking about their false doctrines. We looked at that in our Bible study uh, Wednesday night about uh, the Galatian church, about those of the sect of the Pharisees who had tried to require 
aspects of the law. So Jesus is good, but you can't be saved unless you do this too, right? Well, that was part. Of, that's eleven. That is something that's been added in to the pure and simple gospel. So that was what he was warning against the false doctrine. But the reason that you know, for our purposes, why reason ye you have no bread? Perceive ye not yet? Neither understand? Have ye your heart yet hardened? You have a role in the hardening of your heart. That's that's the takeaway from this, is that you and I, the spiritual clarity that we can have on a day-to-day basis and understanding and learning more about God, we can have an impact on our ability to discern and understand based on what we're doing that is hardening our heart. Okay? And go again finally to Mark chapter 16. Context is Jesus has arisen from the grave and he's going to appear to some people. Mark 16 verse 9, Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first unto Mary Magdalene, out of whom he cast out seven devils. This is great, right? What'd she do? She went and told them that had been with him, his disciples, as they mourned and wept. They're mourning and weeping because their master, the one they've been following around for three years, he's just been killed. And it's been three days, and they're very upset by this. Now, had Jesus told his disciples that he is going to be captured, killed? Yes. And did he also tell them that he was going to rise again? Yes. Did they understand it? No. Right? And so there she goes and tells them as they're mourning and weeping, and they, when they had heard that he was alive and had seen of her, so she's coming and telling them, what did they do? They didn't believe her. They didn't believe her. They believed not. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them. It's on the road to Emmaus. As they walked and went in the country, and then later revealed himself to them. And they went and told it unto the residue, the ones who weren't with them. What was their action? Neither believed they them. Afterward, Jesus appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat. So they're having dinner. And you know what he did? He upbraided them. You know what upbraiding means? It means to chastise. It means to chide. It means to get on to them. Why? They upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Our hardness of heart will hinder our belief. God's word is true. God's word is faithful. God's word doesn't change. Your ability to believe it, genuinely believe it on a day-to-day basis, that does change. And that can have an impact based on you. You can be hardening your heart. You can have a hard heart. And it will hinder your walk. It will hinder your faith. It will hinder your understanding and discernment. It is something we need to guard against, to be aware of, and actively combat. All right. So we talked about the first example was him speaking to unbelievers. They had no mercy that they were desiring, right? They wanted their rules to be followed. That's a different kind of hardness. That's the hardness that describes your natural heart. We talked about our carnal nature last week. We'll go up to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. After Jeremiah, after Lamentations, Ezekiel. Big book. Now, the context of this is Jesus, not Jesus, Lord, is sending word to his people that for their sins, he is going to take them into captivity, and he's one day going to bring them out. Okay? So in Ezekiel chapter 36, start it, let's read in verse 22, starting for 22. He says, Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine own holy name's sake, 
which ye have profaned among the heathen, whither ye went. So his motivation for bringing them back out of captivity, it's not for them. It was for his name's sake. You can understand a little bit more about why he chose anyone in the election. It was for his name's sake. He gets glory by being able to show and demonstrate his mercy shown upon unworthy sinners. I will sanctify my great name. He's going to set his great name apart as holy, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you unto your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Are they cleansing themselves? No. He's cleansing them. All right? And listen to this description of, of the heart. And I want you to think about this in the context of the new birth. Versus your old man. A new heart also will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will also save you from all your uncleanliness. I will call for the corn and the increase, and lay no famine upon you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree, and increase the field, and ye shall receive no more reproach of famine among the heathen. Then shall ye remember your own evil ways, and your doings that were not good, and ye shall loathe yourself in your own sight." for your iniquities and for your abominations. Before you were born again, you had a heart of stone. It was not going to be penetrated by any word spoken, not by any thought of conscience. It was a piece of stone. But when you are born again, when you are given spiritual life, it's like you've been taking that rock out you know, it's like a marble rock. You know, good luck having that pump any blood, right? You've taken that which is just a, a facade of the real and given you a real heart, a heart of flesh. And on that flesh, the Lord's written his law, the new covenant. That's what it's all saying about it, putting his word within you. And then you'll be able to look back and see how you were before. And you'll loathe those iniquities. I mean, this is a spies. I mean, you'll hate that which you engaged in before and, and indeed yourself because of those iniquities and that abomination. So it's not because you're so great. It's not. It's because he's so great. Okay, so that's a hardness. That's the hardness of unbelief, of the unbeliever. That's where you start. And you can't change that on your own. If you go to Jeremiah, go back a few few books, Jeremiah 13 and 23, there's this illustration given to describe your inability, your inability to change. The question's posed, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Okay, so, practical question, can someone who, you know, the leopard... He's got spot pattern, right? Can he decide, oh, I'm going to be a tiger now and have stripes? He has no ability. It's a silly question to even assume, right? He has no ability to change his spots. It says, then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. So the same way a leopard can't say, all right, I'm a tiger now. I mean, you can say it, but it doesn't change it. You can't change from doing the evil to doing good. You have no power of your own. It requires God's intervention, the miracle, the new birth. Okay? So this is one, one aspect of the hard and stony heart. Now, we can make our hearts hardened 
through the voluntary commission of sin. Start by thinking about it, planning it, setting the groundwork to follow through on it, eventually following through once, and then another time, and then another time, until the frequency is so great that it becomes what? Habit. And as things become habitual, we become more and more hardened to it being problematic, to being sin. And the more we do it, we're more entitled to justify ourselves. Well, this is not a problem at all. And in fact, I'm going to interact and hang around with people who do the same thing and have pleasure in it and in them who are doing the wrong thing. This is the process of hardening and hardening our hearts to the point where we can get so hard that if someone were to call us out on it, you know, a matter of reproof or sermons or, or even you know, afflictions that come of it, natural afflictions. Often our sins have natural consequences, right? We can roll them off because our hearts have become so hardened. Ephesians chapter 4 would describe this as being past feeling. You know, you ever had a burn so bad? I haven't, fortunately, but we're so bad that you get down to a certain level, the nerves are gone. It's still a nasty, painful wound, but you can't feel the pain. Ephesians chapter 4 Verse 17, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth, going forward, walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, the mind that is worthless, it's empty, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Right? This is describing that stony heart. These haven't been born again. He said, don't walk like you were before, like they still do. And what is their condition in that 19? Who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanliness with greediness. We can, through our habitual practice of sin, create a spot where we are past feeling. And if you're the Lord's children, that's for a time. He'll get a hold of you. It can break you. And praise God that he does. But often in the chasing of that is grievous. Because we have borne reproach upon his name. And don't feel like this is exclusive to those that are not God's children. We have at least two examples that were talking to the disciples. Those who had given everything up. Right? They walked away from homes and from wives, at least one, and they're following Jesus around, and yet even they had their hearts hardened. Okay? We can have our hearts hardened through neglect of public worship. You skip church three or four weeks, and suddenly you'll discover, eh, what bothered you the first week really doesn't bother you as much on week six or seven or eight. How about private worship? you're really in the habit of, of reading every day and praying every day and then suddenly you go on vacation. Isn't that interesting about vacation? You can have really good habits at home and then you go on vacation. It's like whoop! I'm speaking for myself or I don't know about y'all. It's so much harder for me when I'm on vacation to keep up with my prayer life and, and, and Bible reading time. Bring your Bible. Even if I bring it. <laughs> even if I bring it. Even if I set the coffee pot really early. But what really bothers you on the first day, well, by the end, well, it's really not so bad, right? You become hardened to it. Neglect of public worship, neglect of private worship, keeping bad company. We, we act like those that were around. We follow the bad example of others. Very, very rarely do you influence them in the positive way. It's much easier to go the other way, right? To take the poor behavior and adopt that. Because guess what? More likely than not, they don't care about whatever good that you're doing. If their heart's still stone, nothing you're going to do that's going to change that. It's up to the Lord. And we start giving way. Giving way to the indulgence 
of what we would consider small or insignificant sins, right? And it's a pattern, right? It's progressive. It's not all at once, but it builds and it builds. And when you're hardened to one thing, well, it's a little bit easier to go to that. Well, that doesn't seem so bad then, right? Your perspective starts to get skewed and warped. And before long, you're very far off track. And you're still coming to church, maybe, and you're sitting there, and I'm getting nothing out of it. What's he saying? I don't care. Have ever had that? Maybe the preacher's fault. May not. Go back to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. I want to look at King Zedekiah. 2 Chronicles 36. So Chronicles is uh, the history of the kingdoms. Remember after King David, there came Solomon. After Solomon came his son Rehoboam. And Rehoboam uh, decided that he was going to take some bad advice. And the Lord wound up splitting the kingdom of Israel into two. All right, it became the southern kingdom known as Judah and the northern kingdom known as Israel. All right, so ten of the tribes went to the north and followed this other king. And that, tribe, the, that nation um, was just idolatrous from the beginning. They were worshiping golden cows. I mean, it doesn't get more blatant than that, right? The southern kingdom, they had some good kings. They had some bad kings. Well, you get all the way down to where Nebuchadnezzar, you know Nebuchadnezzar? He was the Babylonian uh, king who's conquering the world. I mean, the Babylonian Empire was the power at this point. And so the only thing they hadn't fully conquered was Jerusalem. And so Nebuchadnezzar had already come in once and put in a puppet king. And, you know, so this puppet king's name is Zedekiah. He was of the bright and mature age of 21 years old, king of Israel. So this is 36, start verse 11. He was uh, 21 when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. So he had, you know, he was done by the time he was 32. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, his God, and humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of the Lord. Don't ever had that experience? Well, I just don't know what to do. The Lord's not speaking to me. Well, this guy had a prophet, Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote a little bit of your Bible. Right? He got a pretty good chunk of a book, and then also Lamentations, right? He's speaking directly to this king, and what was the king not doing? Not listening, not humbling himself as the Lord's giving him good instruction. And then he rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. So he had been, you know, a tribute underneath him. He had to pay him taxes. He was his overlord. He had to, you know, be subject to him. He says, nah, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm not going to do that anymore. So he rebelled. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar had made him swear loyalty to him. And do you know who he made him swear by? God himself. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a dummy. He knew that this God was important to this nation. And so he had to swear loyalty. Now, we've been looking... Uh, back in Joshua about the vow that they made to the Gibeonites, right? God told them, don't make a league with any people in Canaan. Well, they were dumb. They made a league with them because they got tricked. Could they break that league even though they had made, you know, been told, don't make a league? No, they couldn't. They had to keep that vow. And hundreds of years later, Saul, King Saul, would try to break that league and kill off some of the Gibeonites and there'd be this massive plague and trouble that would cause of it because doing what you say is so important. Let your yea be yea. That means if you say yes, then the answer is yes, period, full stop. If you say no, the answer is no, period, full stop. You don't have to make a bunch of oaths or swear, yes, I'll do this, and here's how you're going to commit me to do it. I mean, that's what contracts are all about, of forcing people to do what they say they're going to do. Whereas as followers of God, if we open our mouth, we should follow through, period. If we're not able to follow through, if we're not committed to follow through, don't open your mouth. Right? Well, here, he had sworn by God, that he was going to be loyal and faithful and subject to Nebuchadnezzar. Well, he threw him off. Why? He stiffened his neck. Right? You got an animal. I've never tried to plow with a mule, but I imagine it would be very difficult to make him turn if he didn't want to turn. Right? He stiffens his neck. So you're saying, go over here. And he's, nope, I'm going to keep my neck hard. Going his own way. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart from turning unto the Lord God of Israel. 
He's hardening his heart to prevent him turning back to God. It's not he's hardening his heart and he's turning away. It's hardening his heart not to go back, not to be obedient, not to be subject, not to listen to the counsel that Jeremiah is coming and giving him. He's hardening his heart. And then what was the consequence to the rest of the nation? Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed. Just a little bit. Very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. I mean, how much you know, more defiling can you give? Just, you know, here's the temple that's been made. This is the one spot on earth at this time where you are authorized to go and worship Jehovah God. We're just going to pollute it. We're going to bring in the garbage from other idols. We're going to do it right there. I mean, it's, I mean, it's like spitting in God's face, right? Their leader had hardened his heart, turned his head away from God, and refused to be submissive and go back. What happens to the rest of the nation? All the people who are under him, they're doing the same thing. Men, your leaders in your family, your decisions impact those who are underneath you. Those who are subject to your authority, well, that's a God-given responsibility. That means it's also a responsibility. And so if we're not seeking God with our whole hearts, guess what? You're liable to see that pattern followed in your wife and in your children. And in the church, and also those who are in the church. You're an example. We're supposed to be. So here you have a failure of leadership, and the whole nation suffers. What's the fallout? And the Lord God, uh, the Lord God of their fathers, sent unto them by his messengers, he sent prophets. More than just Jeremiah, multiple prophets. Rising up betimes. That means early and often. Sending uh, because, why, why was he sending these messengers? Because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. God's compassion is why he was sending the instruction. How did they respond? They mocked the messengers, despised his words, misused his prophets. You know, if you go read over in Hebrews 11 about how they, you know, heroes of faith, well, sometimes when those prophets came, they'd, they'd laugh at them, sometimes they'd stone them, sometimes they'd kill them. Until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Got to that point where you ever got to that point with your mama, where you're like, all right, I know I'm in trouble now, and there's no escape. There's nothing I can do. I'm not going to wash the dishes now. There was no remedy at this point. And what did he do? He brought down the king of the Chaldeans, Nebuchadnezzar, and slew the young men with a sword in the house of the sanctuary. Where? That's in the temple itself. Now, they'd already been defiling it. But men are being slain inside God's temple and had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man or him that stooped with age. So they're indiscriminately killing it. I mean, this is a terrible, terrible way that Jerusalem falls. That's what the whole book of Lamentations is, is describing. And they're lamenting the terrible punishment. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and all the treasures of the house of God, and the treasures of the king and its princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God, break down the wall of Jerusalem, and burnt all the places thereof with fire, destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. So in a few verses here, we're seeing the complete wiping out of the city, of the people, of the structures, and of the temple. And them that escaped from the sword, they carried away to Babylon, where there would be servants to him and his sons under the reign of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, it's going to happen. Until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, for as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill three score and ten years. So that was how long they knew the captivity was going to last. It was going to last 70 years because that was all the times that the Lord told them every seventh year, you don't plant any crops. You let the land have its Sabbath. Well, looks like they never observed that. And so the Lord is going to get all of his Sabbath years back by them going into captivity. So you have this leadership failure. This is the last king. The last king of the nation of Judah, they wouldn't have a new king after this. It would be through his line, I mean, he's a descendant of David, that Jesus would eventually come. He's the next king that comes and reigns. All right. Go over to Psalm 95. Psalm 95. Verse 8 your takeaway this morning 
Harden not your hearts. Harden not your hearts. We'll read the rest of it. Harden not your hearts as in the provocation and in the day of temptation in the wilderness. What's he talking about? He's talking about when Israel had been brought out of Egypt and they're testing God. They didn't believe him when he said, I'll bring you into this land. They got over there to the edge and they said, Whoa, those guys are taller than us. They're stronger than us. They got chariots of iron. They got really tall walls. If we go in there, we're going to be like squished like bugs. We're like grasshoppers in their sights. When your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my work, they had just seen all the miracles that God had did on Egypt. Egypt was the, the dominant power at that time, and he had reduced them to, I mean, from the king on down. And yet they had hardened their hearts. They didn't believe that God can do now, even though they'd already seen, and it was in the day of the provocation. They, they, they provoked him. Forty years was I grieved with this generation and, and said, it is a people that do err in their hearts. That err means to stray, to vacillate, to weave. Okay, we're following God. No, we're not. Oh, God can do it. No, we can't. Right? This is the double-minded man, right, who's not stable. He's always going, this, oh, I, I'm giving lip service to God, but when it really comes to rubber-eating mode, I don't trust him. Let me have control back. I'll do it. i got to figure it out. Right? Unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. Okay? So that's the end of the psalm, and that's the exhortation to you, harden not your hearts. What's the beginning of the psalm? What does it start with? It's some positive things. right? It's not just enough to have the negative. Don't do this. What do you fill it with instead? Verse 1, Psalm 95. Oh, come! Church, you know what you are? You're a called out assembly. You come. Oh, come! Let us what? Let us sing! To who? To ourselves, so we can be heard, so we can know that we're a nice choir. Come, let us sing unto the Lord! That's why we come and sing. Not just not to make ourselves feel good. This is not for our time and our backpats. We're coming to sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. Right? I, t- I take great comfort in that since I'm not, you know, highly educated in my singing. I, it doesn't matter. Make a joyful noise. Where does that joy start from? In that heart. Come, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation, that unchanging rock. He's the source, not me. Not anything. anything else is that shifting sand. We're going and singing to Him. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. What are we doing when we come in prayer? We're coming in the presence of God in His very throne room. And we're coming with thanksgiving. If you haven't been joining us at 10, at 10, we start with prayer requests. And the first thing I do with everybody, I go around individually and I say, tell me what you're thankful for this morning. How often in prayer requests do we just start with, here's the request, Lord, give me, give me, give me, right? And those things are important. He's told us to take those to us, but how much better to start with, Lord, let me thank you. Let me praise you. Let me list off. Let me hear 30 things. Because sometimes we, we forget about all the things we need to be thankful for, right? Let me thank you. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. And whether that psalm's read or whether that psalm's sung, let's make a joyful noise, again, from the heart. Why? For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. For no other reason. That's enough. Even if there is no work of salvation to sing about, you still have enough to worship God. But you've got more than that. In his hand are the deep places of the earth and the strength of the hills are also him. This is the creator God. He holds everything. The deep places of the earth, you know, from the very... I mean, there are parts that I don't think of the ocean that we can even explore yet. It's so deep. And yet, it's nothing to him, and he holds it all. The strength of the hills are his also. The sea is his. He made it. His hands form the dry land. Verse 6, O come, let us worship, to bend the knee, to bow, to subject ourselves, to humble ourselves before him. The rest of the time around the world, what are we generally doing? Building ourselves up, which is not where we need to do. Let us worship. Let us bow before him. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, our creator, our sustainer. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. Jesus said that he had sheep, right? There were some that were in the Jewish flock. There were some outside that flock, and all of them he would bring, and not one would he lose. We're his sheep. 
We're his pasture. That's what we need a shepherd. He's our shepherd. It's not me. I'm just, I'm a miserable little under shepherd. Basically, I'm just your servant. Right? You swap that title for minister. Minister sounds kind of important. Servant. It's really all it is. Right? Attendant. Waiter. He's the true shepherd. The people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Now, I've never heard God's audible voice in my life. But I've been given direction by him. Most particularly through his word. And if you want to seek the face of the Lord and you want to hear his word, what's the instruction? Harden not your heart. Don't follow the pattern that was given back in Egypt where they'd seen these wonderful works. Mighty. We don't have time to look, look, look at them all. But the end result was that they didn't believe. They didn't believe that God was good enough for them to trust. Bingo. He is. How you know some picture? Well, this is this is Old Testament. How do we know that this this applies to us? Go to Hebrews chapter three. You know what Hebrews chapter three is going to quote? Psalm ninety-five. Hebrews chapter three. We'll get there. Titus Hebrews three. Now the whole first three chapters of Hebrews is talking about how much greater Christ is than everybody. Men, angels, whatever you think is high, he is way higher. Right? God used to speak to his people by prophets. Well, he sent something better. He sent his own son. That's what it starts in 1 and 2. Uh, God, who at sundry times, it passed in the past in diverse manners, spake in times past unto the fathers by his prophets. That was the old way. He hath in these last days spoken to us by what? By his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he hath made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. There are people who will teach a false doctrine that Jesus is just an angel. No! So you go to chapter 3. He says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ. Now, we talked about apostles in Bible study. We talked about those who are apostles of Jesus Christ. Well, it says Jesus here is the apostle. Well, who's the apostle of? He's an apostle of the Father. He is a specially side, specially set aside witness, ambassador to declare the Father's will. All right? There's no one else in that category. All the other 12 apostles and you know, Matthias and then Paul, they're apostles of Jesus. But the apostle is Jesus Christ. Consider the apostle, the high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ, who was faithful to him that appointed him, God the Father, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. So here we're going to see that Jesus is way better than Moses. Right? This letter is written under the Hebrews. The Hebrews held Moses in pretty high regard. Right? Saying this is way better than that. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he hath builded the house, hath more honor than the house. Right? Okay, so we go out here and we work on work on the screen porch, right? Which has more glory. The guys who did the work on it or the porch itself, right? Here it's saying that Moses had a house that he was put in and he was laboring in, but he didn't build the house. Jesus himself built the house and he has more glory than the house itself. That's the illustration. For every house is builded by some man. But he that buildeth all things is God. Who's Jesus? God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house. He did a good job as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken after. But Christ, as a son over his own house, which he built, whose house we are. So what's, what's this house thing? What's the house? His people, his children, his church, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. It's just saying if I, if I don't hold fast the confidence that I'm not part of his house, it's saying that one evidence that you'll have that you are part of his house is that you will. It's not up to you to hang on to it. It's that those who are his will have this. 
their whole life. His church will have this the whole life. The church is not going to go away. He is going to continue to preserve it until he comes back. Okay? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing to the hope firm until the end, well, it's the end. That's when he comes back. Wherefore, because of that, as the Holy Ghost saith, all right, Psalm 95, whoever the penman was, it was the Holy Ghost saying it, inspired it. As the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said they do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, so I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Right? This is in parentheses. He's quoting this to prove, to prove the point. Right? Wherefore, in the parentheses, take heed, brethren. He's saying, I've got a point to make. Here's the scripture that justifies it. Take heed. Beware. Be on guard. Be noteful. Be mindful. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today. How often should we be exhorting one another? Daily. Tomorrow? I don't see more. While it's today, exhort one another, exhort each other what? Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Can we be hardened? Yeah. What can we be hardened by? By sin. By the deceitfulness of sin. That sin. Now, what's the deceit? Well, it's really not that big of a deal. Or it's really not that bad. Or it's really not problematic. Or I can control it. These are all the deceits of sin. And when we engage in that, what happens? We become hardened. What is one of the way the Lord designed His church? Is for the mutual encouragement and accountability and to be mutually exhorting each other. Does this say, preacher, exhort the people? No, it doesn't. That is part of my job, but that is not exclusively my job. Each of you, <laughs> for each of you, have a charge to care and love your brothers and sisters enough to tell them the hard truths. And to encourage them before they get there. Right? Y'all ever see somebody where you're like, you, I'm worried about so-and-so. They're going off on a path that seems troubling. And sometimes that's as far as we take it. I've noted it. I may even whispered it to somebody. But I didn't actually go to them and encourage them or exhort them. And so time passes and things are really awry now. And what, what do we do? Well, that's that's bad. I sure am. So, man, that's that's terrible. Sorry that they're like that. I mean, right? We kind of had this laissez-faire of well, it, it was inevitable. Uh, is it? I don't think so. Otherwise, why would we be given the admonition to take heed, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God? We all need the encouragement daily to seek the Lord. To continue to put his kingdom first. Why? Because each of you have a carnal nature that says, I don't want to do that. I'm the same way. So, don't harden your heart. Well, what's some, what's some things that we could put in its place? What are some of the positives that we can do instead? Go to the next, chapter, next book over to James. thought we were going to be completely away from James today, right? James chapter 5, verse 8. Let's read 7, just get your context. Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Rejoicing, holding fast to the confidence, rejoicing in that hope firm to the end, right? That's what we're going to be doing as a church. Holding fast in our confidence. That confidence is outspokenness, boldness in what we're doing. And what are we doing? We're holding fast the faith until the end that Jesus is coming back and that we believe that and we can talk, declare that. Verse 7 here says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruits of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and the latter rain. You know, if Will plants his hay and then goes out the next week and starts harvesting, would it be a very good crop? 
No. Right? Well, it's saying here that the same way that a husbandman has to wait till things are fully ripe, the Lord's waiting until the world's fully ripe. And he's going to wait till just the right time. So while that's happening, you be patient. He's the husbandman. We're waiting. Verse 8, be ye also patient. And do what? Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. He's coming back. It's getting closer in your admonition. Rather than harden your hearts, establish your hearts. What do we mean by that? If you look at Strong's, it means to turn resolutely in a fixed direction. Turn resolutely. To pick, to pick your course, what's your course be focused on? Jesus, your author, head and finisher of your faith. That's who we're looking towards, we're the way. Turn to him and stay on that course. Turn resolutely. That means with determination. This is, this is part of the mental commitment that we make in our service. Establish your heart. Establish your heart. Steadfast. Turn resolutely in a certain direction. Who's doing that? You are. Often we kind of pass the buck to the Lord, right? Lord, make me more zealous. Lord, give me a new heart. Lord, I mean, and there are things that you can pray for. That's good. Part of your actions and your attitudes and your responses, they're your responsibility. Let's go back to Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. This is an example of something that you can be praying for. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and given us an everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Do you have comfort this morning? Do you have good hope in what Jesus has done and his completed work and that you'll be with him one day? If you have that, that's been given by Jesus Christ and the Father. You've been given that. Now unto him, as who we're praying, comfort your hearts. And establish you in every good word and work. Comfort your heart. Lord, comfort my heart. Remind me daily what my Lord has done for me. What he has secured and what I'm looking forward to. Comfort me. Comfort my heart and establish you in every good work. May he give us comfort and may he establish us in every good work and word. Whatever we're doing and in whatever we're saying, right? They can't be inconsistent with each other. Let's go back to Second Chronicles again. We're going to look at a different king. Right? We looked at one who had hardened his heart. He had turned from God. He was too stiff-necked to go back. Go back to Second Chronicles. Let's go to look at, at verse uh, chapter 19. Second Chronicles 19. This king is Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat wasn't perfect. He was a good king, but he made a league with one of the worst kings that the northern kingdom has, King Ahab. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned to his house in peace to Jerusalem, and a prophet came to see him. Jehu, the son of Hananiah, the seer, went out to meet him and said unto Jehoshaphat, says, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? That's another way of saying do we be unequally yoked. Right? Should you love those that hate the Lord? Should you help the ungodly? It says, therefore, wrath is upon thee from the Lord. That's pretty scary. Verse 3, Nevertheless, there are good things found in thee, and that thou hast taken away the groves out of the land, and hast prepared thine heart to seek God. That word prepare means to, to set up, to make erect. It means to be diligent, and that he was, he was with a purpose going to seek God. He had prepared his heart to seek him. Now this would play out later that there was going to be a, a massive host that was going to come against their nation. And Jehoshaphat, his response over in verse 3 is, Jehoshaphat feared this, uh, this um, host, and he set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities they came to seek the Lord. And the Lord miraculously delivered them. And that was good. If you jump to the end of the chapter, this is in chapter 20 and in verse 32. 
kind of the summary of his life after he's died. He said, He walked in the ways of Asa his father and departed not from it, doing that which was right in the sight of the Lord. So this is kind of the epitaph for his life for Jehoshaphat. How be it? There's a however. However, the high places were not taken away. Now God had given instruction. The only place you're to offer sacrifices was in the temple. The place where I set my name, that's where you do it. Well, people had gotten out of that happen because all the other people, they like to sacrifice wherever they want. They go up to the high places and, and you're closer to God up there. So it makes sense, right? Or at least that's the logic. And so he hadn't taken them away. He had done some, some things to get rid of the idolatry, but those he hadn't taken away. Why? How be it the high places were not taken away for as yet the people had not prepared their hearts unto the God of their fathers. Okay, So is that enough here that you've got a leader who has prepared his heart to seek God? It's not enough. He could only lead them so far because the people themselves hadn't prepared their hearts. Is there an individual responsibility for you and for me to prepare our hearts to make it purposeful commitment to seek the Lord and seek His face? Yeah! not rhetorical. Prepare your heart to seek the Lord. All right, let's go forward one book to Ezra. All right, timeline is the 70 years has elapsed. We're now, the Lord has pulled them out of captivity and they've sent them back and they're starting to rebuild. So Ezra comes. This is Ezra chapter 7. He's going to part from Babylon. It's going to take him four months to get there. And on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon, Ezra 7 and verse 9. And on the first day of the fifth month came he Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. So God was blessing his journey. The good hand of the Lord was upon him. <coughs> Why? Verse 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to just seek the Lord. And it says to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel the statutes and judgments. Is a good example for us. We need to seek the Lord. That's the way we can do that. By seeking His Word. And doing it. And teaching it. Prepare your heart to seek the Lord. Seek the Lord's law. Seek His Word. Do it and teach in Israel. Committing yourself to doing that. You know, Those who have that hard and stony heart... Those who were the unbelievers, right? They, they didn't care for mercy. What does Micah 6, 8 say? Right? He hath shown thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to love mercy. Right? Do justly, and to walk humbly with thy God. Right? We had a king who had a hard heart that wouldn't humble himself before God. Right? You've got hard-hearted men who hated mercy and wouldn't show it. Those who don't care for justice or equity or that which is right. They didn't care that what Jesus was doing was right. They wanted to destroy him because they didn't fit into their mold. Love mercy. Have a soft heart. It's okay. What if I'm taking advantage of? Okay. Love justice. Love what's right. Do what's right. Even if it's not popular. Especially if it's not popular. Walk humbly before your God. Our pride is not good. Our pride will hinder our walk. Can two walk together except they be agreed? The answer is no. You can't walk with God if you're thinking you're the big dog. That ain't, that ain't reality. It's not. If you're walking humbly knowing I'm looking to you. I need you. You have a better perspective and you're able to walk closer. Let's go lastly to Luke Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. Luke 29. Jesus said to them all, If any man will come after me, if any man's going to follow me, if any man's going to be my disciple, one who wants to accompany me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. That's our admonition. Don't harden your heart today, but rather each day deny yourself 
Take up your cross and follow him. It's not just words. It's just words. It doesn't matter. It's a starting point. And then you go and do it. Seek the Lord. Prepare your hearts to seek the Lord. Seek his word. Do it. As you learn, as you've got light, do it. And teach others. Thank you. Time and attention. If I have a number, you like to sing in closing. <clears throat>